You're listening to Make and Multiply, a podcast devoted to equipping the members of Emmaus Road Church to make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ in the city of Sioux Falls. The people of Emmaus Road are committed to regular rhythms of gathering and scattering. We gather corporately in worship on Sunday mornings. We gather in missional communities and discipleship huddles. And we scatter throughout our city where we want to give every resident of Sioux Falls repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Make and Multiply. My name is Matt Groon. I am a pastoral resident at Emmaus Road Church, and I am joined this morning with Ryan Chase, as always, elder and pastor at Emmaus Road Church, and for the first time on the pod, making his debut, as they say, our good friend Cameron Ostrom. Welcome, buddy. Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it's so good it's to exciting. have you. Welcome to our super professional, very eloquent set- mm-hmm. <laughs> setup. Uh, so, the reason why we invited uh, Cam on this morning um, is because, well, one, he's probably one of the smartest guys I know, but then also on December 21 of last year, he wrote a blog um, for our on Emmaus Road Church's website uh, on C.S. Lewis's work, The Abolition of Man. Um, I read it. I didn't even know it was up, but then I read it a couple weeks ago and was just, wow, we got to get him on to talk about this. So, um, Abolition of Man written by C.S. Lewis, which is a short-ish book. Less than a hundred pages, um, and you mentioned in you mentioned in the opening of your blog that you know it can be read. You can sit down and read it. Um, you might, if you go that fast, you might not <laughs> digest it all very well, but you can read it in a couple hours. Um, so, Cam, tell us a little bit about just brief overview, if you will, of the abolition of man. Uh, what what what's up with the title? What's 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 the brief points he's trying to make? Yeah, well, I think I read it. A- like four years ago, and um, like most of Lewis's work, the first time I read it, I don't even know what I'm getting into. Uh, <laughs> kind of difficult to comprehend and di- digest, but uh, I read it a couple more times and then just kept reading it, um, mostly because I felt like it gave me a framework for understanding the culture mm. and the cultural moment that we're in. Um, more so than, there's there's plenty of topics to read about. You can read about no-fault divorce, you can read about abortion, you can read about transgenderism and get um, an idea of, of where those things are at. But the abolition of man gets right to the root mm. of uh, those philosophical um, ways of thinking. Hold so, on, hold on, pause. Yeah. So abolition of man gets to the point of the cultural moment that we're in now. Yeah. Well, wasn't abolition of man written in the 40s? Yeah, exactly. So um, Lewis noticed, and, and to get right to your question of you know what is this book about and, and the title and all that, Lewis notices in elementary textbooks that were written back in the 40s mm. that there was a stream of thinking that was troublesome to him, mostly because um, they were talking about English and English prep work and grammar and yet, um, embedded in these these uh, these textbooks was a philosophical thought that was not being explicitly um, alluded to. Mm. It was it was embedded in the writings, and there was no chance for the child to have any disagreement with it because it was assumed and it was not taught. And so, for Lewis, um, this was troublesome because you imagine a child reading about what's supposed to be English but getting into deep philosophical underpinnings that will transform the way that they not only think, but interact with the world Mm. and they have no defense against such a thing. And so the abolition of man um, for Lewis, and we'll get into this and and what the implications are, 
the abolition of man, um, the title is alluding to the fact that this philosophical train of thought takes us away from the essence of humanity mm. and removes the human nature that for most of world history, and by most I mean up until about five minutes ago, <laughs> everybody had believed and assumed. Yeah. Um, so we've got these people um, that maybe for good reason to them are trying to get into these um, philosophical thoughts, but they aren't explaining themselves. Or, mm. I mean, they're just not giving the reader um, the truth of the matter. Yeah, I think that might be, you know, as I was, I read Abolition of Man when I was in college. And yeah, I think that was the first time I read it. And like you, it just kind of like blew past me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, mm -hmm. I bet there was some good stuff in there, but I, that was too much. I can't, yeah. I need to, I need to run it back, but I didn't. Uh, but in the meantime, I read, uh, Lewis's ransom trilogy, mm -hmm. uh, that in out of the science planet, Paralandra and that hideous strength. And it's, it's pr particularly in that hideous strength, um, which is Lewis says in the preface is the novel form if you will, of the point he's trying to make in Abolition of Man. Mm -hmm. um, and that is his strength. I read for the first time about five, six years ago and have read it at least once a year since. Um, one of my favorite, probably my favorite book. And part of it is because, you know, it was also written back in the 40s and also has this kind of prescient like talking about now in a weird way. Mm. Uh, it's diagnosing the society we live in in 2023 in a way that is just, it's eerie. Mm -hmm. um, 80 years later. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I remember that the first time I read it. And then to read That He Is Strength, I've recently gone back and read Abolition of Man and all of a sudden started to recognize characters within That He Is Strength that take on the um, the points that he's trying to make, the, the type of people. And then what's beautiful about That He Is Strength is he fleshes that out into his story form of what this could look like in, the, in these kind of devious characters. Mm. And then you look around and you're like, they're here. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening. Mm -hmm. so, so Ryan, what about you? When was, you know, when did you first read it and what were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I think I was in high school, hmm. uh, saw it on my parents' shelf, the bookshelf at home. Um, and similar to both of you, I think most of it was over my head at the time, but what always stuck, stuck with me, I remember reading about I remember the word sublime and I remember the point that he was making early on about this English grammar book using a statement. Like somebody makes this statement about a waterfall, the waterfall being sublime. What does that mean? And, and that did stand out to me the very first time that I read it, uh, that he was saying the, the authors of this book are trying to say the statement that the waterfall is sublime is not actually about the waterfall. You're, it's simply the person talking, making a statement about their feelings mm -hmm. subjectively. They're just describing themselves. They're not describing the objective world outside of them. And then Lewis taking issue with that saying that is a, an incredibly dangerous idea mm. that disconnects us from reality and any objective standard by which we would evaluate anything, including mm. our own feelings and whether or not our feelings are appropriate. Right. Um, so that, that, that was the thing that stood out to me the first time that I read through it. But, but similar than going back through and retaining more, mm. um, I just read it a few months ago. And I remember that I just kept thinking, this gives an account of everything going on in the world around us. Like right. if you are looking out at the world culture, even take something that seems so modern and recent, like the transgender ideology, um, and surgeries and hormone blockers and all of that. You go back and you read Lewis, Abolition of Man, 1940s, and you go, he 
predicted this. He warned this, that this is the ultimate end of that thinking that we end up just chopping ourselves up and thinking we can turn ourselves into whatever we want to. And really it's, we are being ruled by Mm -hmm. the appetites of a few people, their passions, their whims. We're not tethered to Mm -hmm. anything objective. And so it just, like Cam said, it it just makes sense of the world we're living in, in an incredible way. Yeah. That's it, it, to me, you know, reading again through it recently, um, it had a similar effect, kind of what you're describing to like, you know, we've done recently on the podcast, not recently, but in the past, we've done a, a podcast on a book review of um, Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and mm-hmm. his decaf version, Strange New World. And that that book has a similar effect. It, it helps us kind of diagnose what's happening around us in ways that are helpful. But Truman's point is to trace philosophical thought from the enlightenment all the way till now in multiple different strains. But what Lewis does is he kind of like, he doesn't reference any of those other thinkers. He's just referencing now and referencing. This is what's not what has happened and what could happen. This is what is happening. He's just observing and he's just observing. Um, so Mm. Cam, the first chapter Mm -hmm. entitled men without chests, Mm -hmm. what does that, (laughs) what does that mean? Because, I think his point there is just like, I mean, Ryan was kind of describing it. It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, diagnosing where we're at, but what does he mean by men, we, men without chests? Yeah. Um, and, and just, I want to touch on one other thing that, mm-hmm. uh, the, the nice thing about Lewis's charitability in the first chapter is that he, before he gets into, um, his disagreements with the philosophy, um, he just wants to make sure that everyone knows that there are two ways to view the world. Mm-hmm. There is a way to look at the world, that there's an objective reality that there is reason, reason, meaning, and purpose, and that it is our job to find that objective reality and conform our emotions to it. Mm. There is another way to view the world where it says that um, objective reality is nonsense and that my subjective view of the world is what truly matters, mm. and so I will bend the world to fit what I believe. Mm. Um, and, and he starts out by saying, yeah, that is two different ways to view the world, and he gets into the logical implications of what those mean. Um, but he just wants to make sure that people are aware that there's two different ways to view the world rather than smuggling it in. And so in the first chapter, he, he starts out by explaining that. He wants everyone to see that this is a, a lens. Um, these teachers are using a lens that is colored by that subjective view of the world. Right. And then he jumps in and he talks about how most of the world, um, most of mankind, and he, he goes into different um, philosophies and different parts of the world and different eras from Stoicism to Hinduism to Taoism. And he says all of these, um, what, what, while they might have some disagreements on some rather trivial things, they all did believe that there was an objective order mm. and that um, in order to live in to, in order to comport to reality means that you have to first believe that there's an objective order mm. and then find yourself living in the grain of that objective order. Yeah. Um, men without chess, uh, it really comes in towards the back end of the chapter. He has this, um, he gets into, um, a, a few different poets, philosophers, um, Plato, Aristotle, Thomas Traherne, and they, they each have a different way of grasping at this. And um, Plato has uh, a famous way of looking at it that says, the head rules the belly through the chest. Mm. Um, the head would be the intellect, the reason that we all have. The belly would be our appetites, 
Um, and then the chest would be sentiments or mm. the seat of magnanimity is how he puts it. And magnanimity means the greatness of soul. And so our job as educators, as, um, as you guys, as pastors, as parents, is to form the chest in such a way that it does uh, lean into the grain of reality, that it does follow the way, the reason, or the, the catch-all phrase that he uses, the Tao. And in order, in order to do that, again, you have to believe that that is such a thing. Mm-hmm. And then you have to, um, you have to find the, the sentiments that actually are in accordance with that reality. Yeah. And if you remove that chest, that's the point he's making, right? Like if you take out the chest, if you take out the, the seat of magnanimity, the, 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 the virtue, mm-hmm. the, the thing that governs the head and the, the, and the, and the stomach, the instinct, if you remove that, you're left with a, 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 a pure intellect operating and and forcing itself on nature, just on the appetites of men alone. Yeah, yeah. Or and, and just to um, bring some color to it, you, you think about um, something. If we use the term appetite. That could be a lot of different things, but it can literally just mean your appetite. Mm. Um, you as a human have these desires and it could be related to food where you feel like you could just keep on eating or you want to eat certain things that taste good. Um, your mind will at some point say, I don't know if this is good for me, but if you don't have anything governing your reason and being, um, getting in between your appetite and your mind, you will continue to lean more and more into your appetite. The appetite is what he would describe as animal instinct. And so Mm. we have these instincts, whether they're sexual pleasure or um, it's safety or it's, it's eating and these appetites will eventually take over us. Mm. We need something, um, an intermediary to, to get in between the reason and the belly And, and the chest is what is going to be trained to either conform to that reality or be abandoned and grow weak and atrophy. Yeah. And the, and the, the, the chest is what's, um, recognizing an objective good, an objective bad, and governing those and being the intermediary that you said in between the two. That man, that's mm-hmm. that and there's helpful. the um Thomas Traherne in Abolition of Man is quoted and he says he says that um one second, I'll find it here. He says, Can you be righteous unless you be just in rendering to things their due esteem? And so not only is this, we're living in the grain of reality, but there's a righteousness component to this. Mm-hmm. There's a goodness component to this. There's, you are becoming more and more like the thing you ought to be, which is a signal of virtue. That's right. Yeah. 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 I love how he talks about um, when he's describing the chest, emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. Mm. That, that is packed with meaning. Yeah. Organized emotions, for one thing, um, again, kind of seems rare to find people who think that way or want to organize their emotions. We tend to be ruled by emotions yeah. and we live in a society that says, well, you know, for your mental health, just express whatever you feel, just let it out, um, you know, validate feelings and emotions. But this is talking about organizing them by trained habit. Mm-hmm. So, so there's some training and repetition and and there's a standard, you know, training assumes there there's some objective standard that you're moving toward or that is in view. There's a a rubric there and, and yeah, there's a discipline and habit there into stable sentiments. So there's a stability of 
being that mm-hmm. comes from this. Um, and, and that connection, he talks later, he says, people who are just after the intellectual side, they want to deny, they want to avoid sentimentality. And um, he says, they're not like intellectual giants. Mm-hmm. Um, their heads just look big next to their the lack of a chest. chest. Their yeah. chest is atrophied. And so their heads look disproportionately big, but they're not intellectually superior to the rest of us, which is an incredible way to put it. Yeah. It, this, this virtue, you know, Augustine defines virtue as rightly ordered loves. Yeah. So, so Lewis is in a stream of thought here that is not, he's not, what he's not putting his finger uh, on a novel thing. Um, this is his, this is in a stream of thought that for all history, we've yeah. felt this way that there are, that I do have instinctual desires. I do have a mind that can reason, but I also have the seat of this virtue that um, is aimed at a objective outside of me. Good. And I, and I think it's, you know, that the person, the very opening of the book, like you said, his diagnosis of he's recognizing that there is a philosophy afoot in our educational system that is seeking to uh, remove very subtly remove chests from men. Um, and it's in thinking of like the separation between like fact and value mm-hmm. and that there are, you know, it re- what really matters is how you feel about the world, not necessarily what is the world and should I conform my feelings towards them. Um, and the effect of that, that, that has now had on, you know, in 1943, some 60 years or, uh, however many years, 80 years later, uh, we look today, how could it be, you know, Truman picking up what Truman said, how could it be that, Somebody could make a statement like I am a man trapped in a woman's body and not be la- laughed at as an incoherent sentence. Now that very sentence, if you say that and have anything other than open and affirming um, reaction to it, even to question it is to be seen as bigoted and mm-hmm. intolerant and, and all the rest. So really we have, we are now currently bearing the fruit of removing oh, yeah. the chest from man. I think there's an incredible point he makes there too that, Cameron, like you were explaining, it's it's not that this was taught by introducing another class or subject into school. It was just through grammar. And Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that makes Lewis so many people recognize the fact he picked up on this because it was just like a little little fracture that he's saying this is going to open into a, a massive chasm has implications. That's instructive for us that um, the assumptions of our worldview Mm -hmm. are crucial and you know we see that today where a lot a lot of people are um they're suspicious of critical race theory and worried about if that's being taught in their child's school what they don't realize is it's not going to come in like hey here's a class called critical race theory and we're teaching this it's more like it's just the air everybody's breathing it is the water everybody's swimming in and so in math and history and language that's where it's going to come out. It, it comes out in those things. And so this is, this is a worldview issue, which is why those fundamental levels of which way are you looking at the world? What kind of world are we in? That matters the most, not just, well, math is math. And so it doesn't matter. English grammar is grammar. How could it be any different? No, it, it's always going to be taught from a perspective and that that's going somewhere. Yeah. yeah and, um, as we recognize these things, as we recognize there's these principles that uh, disagree with uh, our line of thinking with 
an objective world of value. Um, the only way to get rid of that and to root it out is to get to the source. It's like walking up to a, a lake that looks to be poisoned and you filter it out and clean out the lake and, and then come back a week later and it still has the poison in it. Okay, well, go upstream and you get to a spring and then you realize that the spring is pumping out poison, which means it's drawn from an aquifer of poison. Mm. Um, the only way to cure that lake, to get it back to the life-giving lake that it was meant to be, is to cleanse out that aquifer. You continue mm. to do the things downstream, you're never going to get to the root of the issue. And that's where this book comes in really helpful to me is you can read books um, like Truman's and you can say, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But undergirding all of those things that Truman talks about in his book, and he alludes to it as well, um, is a foundational philosophy that you, it's a presupposition. And, and Lewis doesn't make any bones about that. We have to get to the root of my my view on this, like there, there is a, a principle here that I am going to presuppose yep. that will be, um, that will follow forward of this idea of living virtuously. Mm. Um, and for us as, as Christians, um, this isn't something we have to shy away from. Does Lewis does not explicitly talk about, um, Christianity in this book, but he certainly is drawing from the Bible. And for anyone that's listening, that has a, a questioners confused about, well, how, how do we know that the world has objective order and value? Mm. Well, in Genesis, how does God create? He creates order mm. and then he gives it value. He calls his creation good. That's right. And then he creates different levels of value by calling man very good. Mm. And then that just goes all throughout the rest of the Bible. Yeah. There's order and there's value and it is implicit in scripture and is it, it's implicit in how we see the world and operate. And if we don't operate with that worldview, we ends up seeing a lot of issues and it, that's exactly right and i think the the reality that god made the world and he made it good he, he made it with order and made and gave it value but then he put a creature in the midst of it yeah who was made in his image who is the image of god and is given a command to make and multiply to be fruitful and multiply and subdue and have dominion over it so there is a um you know th that's what we were designed to do yeah. so we shouldn't be surprised that in a fallen world that men seek to conquer nature, right? It, it shouldn't be a, this isn't a, a, an outside of our lane kind of thing. It's just a broken way that we are trying to bring nature and bring the wilderness into our sub in, in, into our control and into our domain. And then Lewis at towards the end, he, he talks at length about man's conquest of nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and he has this phrase, he says, man's conquest of nature turns out, in the moment of its consummation to be nature's conquest of man. Because right. if we, tr that, that taking dominion that God commanded to Adam and Eve was meant to be in an objective order. Yeah. There, there wasn't just go and do whatever. Underneath you, God's rule and reign. Exactly. Yeah. It's not a go and do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. It's a, um, take it under your domain as you exercise it as my image bearers in the world. Yeah. And so always our going and taking dominion is meant to be ordered rightly with an objective thing outside of us in the revelation of God. And, and that highlights well with, um, you know, in, in that hideous strength where he's taking these two world, we were talking before the mic turned on about what's beautiful about that hideous strength. As, as great as abolition of man is, which it is, and it's, it's, it's such a good diagnosis of this, of this philosophy, what that his strength does is plays it out in the world and then also offers a counter. Like in that his strength, there is a dualism going on between the NICE and this scientism um, that is seeking to have such control over nature that eventually it 
destroys it. And then the, the crew at St. Anne's, which, which is this, <laughs> this odd group of people, but there's beauty and objective good happening mm-hmm. there. Um, and it sets these two, the, these two forward. And it kind of is a play on, and we've talked about this in the past, of, of, of magic in these old fairy tales of like Tolkien's view of magic and um, in Lewis's view of it. And especially in Tolkien's in the Lord of the Rings, you see the elves exercising this magic is working with the grain of nature. Mm -hmm. It is taking dominion, Mm -hmm. but it's working with the ordered world. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, (laughs) the, um, you know, the, the evil Sauron and, and Saruman and all these guys, they are exercising quote unquote magic in an, um, abusive, almost this uh, re- taking dominion yeah. through, and it's, it's always pictured through like machinery, mm-hmm. and which is science. This technological, well, I think some, somebody said, um, abolition of man is, or uh, see, uh, that he is strength is a, there's this technocratic bad guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is, it's a taking dominion, but actually in the midst of that, you're actually destroying yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, he, and he talks about magic in Abolition of Man, and mm-hmm. he talks about science. And he said that they were twins born of um, the same impulse. And yeah. that impulse had a lot to do with power. Mm-hmm. And magic can be good, and, and science can be good, but they both can be bad if their ends are misunderstood. If the end is power, you're just going to end up destroying everything in your path. Mm-hmm. If the end is truth, goodness, and beauty, you're going to use it for goodness, truth, and beauty. And there will be restraints because... Yeah. We don't get to find that. Right. Right. Truth, goodness, and beauty objectively imposed on us by our creator Mm. draws boundary lines, what you can and can't do, which is very different than a worldview that says, well, stuff is all random and just turning into whatever it wants to become. And so we can impose essentially our appetites. I think that's where the first chapter ties in. It's just people imposing their appetites on stuff. What do I want to make this into for my sake, power, you know, uh, eternal life, whatever. Yeah. And the value claim comes in when, when you say that things actually do have objective value. And then, um, Matt, when you were talking about, uh, um, it was, uh, Augustine that talked about Oro Amoris where there's the right ordering of affections. Mm -hmm. Well, we see this again as Christians in idolatry, idolatry isn't the fact that you love money. It's that you love money more than your spouse and your family or God. Um, There's nothing wrong with food, but when you make food the primary thing, it gets out of order with the right, correct order of the loves that ought to be, it becomes an idolatrous and dangerous thing. And so what Lewis is talking about here is that in a world of objective order, there's different value propositions on the objects outside of us. And so we have to have a correct response to that. And <clears throat> this comes out in just the way that we live our lives. If we continue to misorder these things, what was, what was the, the first sin was more of a, I know better than you. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I believe that my order, my view of the world is more important than yours, God creator. Mm-hmm. And that misordering leads to, there's, there's necessary implications in this. Yeah. And that's what Lewis gets to in the third chapter. This isn't my hypothesis of what could happen if we continue to go down this path. This is necessarily what will happen. Right. And then in that hideous strength, he takes it all the way to the very end, which we might not be quite there, but we're on that well, path. We're pretty close. We're pretty scary. close. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, yeah. But that's the thing is what really will escalate. I think the thing that um, history, I mean, Lewis makes the, 
the, the lays the ground for it. But then as the past 80 years have shown since he wrote this is the thing that really escalates this philosophy is the um, acceleration of tech of technology mm. of the thing that can mediate that thing that if there's anything that can take control of nature around us, it's our technology. Yeah. And we see that now is um, yes, these we've, we've removed the chest, but now we've, the, our appetites, our appetites are becoming more and more <laughs> crazy. Yeah. And now the appetite of I'm a, I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body. You know, now we have, you know, somebody might say 80 years ago, well, that's, you know, that's too bad. But now we have the technological means to, to do it, something impose about Impose that to, irrational exactly. appetite on matter. And yeah. what we're finding is that in doing that, Lewis is exactly right. In doing that, we end up actually destroying ourselves. Mm. It, it is not a flourishing, you might, you know, just when you jump off a cliff, you may feel for a moment the feeling of flying. <laughs> but nature, because it's made by God, has a certain order in a certain mm -hmm. way and the rocks below are coming um and so we shouldn't be surprised when we look out in the world and we see the devastation that it's that's being wrought mm -hmm. by the implications and the outplaying of this uh, philosophy mm -hmm. he, he talks in that third chapter the abolition of man about what he calls the magician's bargain mm -hmm. give up our soul get power in return you know that that's that's the bargain we, we think we're making. Mm. Um, but once our souls, he says, that is ourselves have been given up, the power thus conferred will not belong to us. We shall in fact be the slaves and puppets of that to which we have given our souls. That's right. So, so there's, there's a, a trade-off. And that section where he talks about magic and science mm. and nature, and you notice he prefers... Um, natural philosophy mm -hmm. as a term for what we would think of as, you know, as Christians, isn't science a good thing? God made the world. We want to understand the world we live in. He would prefer that older term natural philosophy because there's a philosophy still to it. What, right. what is the stuff? What is nature? Yeah. What's it for? Yeah. And, and then there are limits to what you can do with it versus modern science, which is godless and says it's just matter. And Lewis, that really rubs him the long, the wrong way. Anytime somebody says it's just this, it's mm -hmm. mere that, um, which comes out in uh, book three in the in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when th there's this you know former star as a person, and, and Eustace is like, well, in our world, stars are just burning balls yeah. of gas. And <laughs> Ramandu says, even in your world, that's not all they are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Lewis is getting at this idea of like, when you look at the world, when you look at trees, when you look at cells under a microscope, mm -hmm. when you look at the stars in the heavens, modern science wants to explain it all away and say, Oh, that's just, you know, cells. And that's just made up of atoms. And that's just these parts as though mm. it, it's nothing. It's, it's nothing. You, yeah. you can chop it up. You can burn it up. You can do whatever you want with it because it's just this. Yeah, and it, it just removes purpose from everything that mm -hmm. we do and meaning. So, and and I feel these impulses too when I read something about like a star coming down in human form. I'm like, but that isn't really what stars are. That's why this is That's, a fantasy is, book. Yeah, <laughs> but but what he's what he's um, drawing back into is the medieval view of the world, which was fully enriched and colored with mm -hmm. meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like they believed that stars were actually people, mm -hmm. but by turning stars into people in narrative form it gave them more of that meaning and enriched what they were doing and enriched the world that they were a part of um and i, I think i've heard lewis explain it like this you can 
you can say that a seed falls to the ground because of gravity, or you could say that a seed falls to the ground in order to become a tree because it's fulfilling its purpose. Mm-hmm. Those two things are accurate. Um, they, they, there is, there are different causes to um, every object and, yeah. and there's different ways to explain these things. Um, if you believe that a, a tree produces a seed that falls to the ground because God's lovingly ordained a world to do so, it to me makes a, a much more exciting and enjoy just a joy filled world to live in. Yeah. Um, and that's true. That's the way that we look at the world. We don't have to explain everything mechanistically. Mm. As soon as you turn everything into a mechanism, it becomes a tool to be used for your gain. That's right. So even when he's talking about, um, I believe it's in the first chapter with the possibility of controlling even um, uh, the next the next group of humankind, um, and, and you believe that contraceptives can be used for whatever purpose that you want it to be used, um, that's not too far from just de- determining what your offspring looks like. Right. And in order to do that, you're just going to look at it through the lens of, well, what is good for me? Yeah. Not what is this thing actually good for? Right. And again, you're just being ruled by appetite yeah. rather than the head through the chest yeah. ruling those yeah. appetites. I think a great example of that from scripture that the, those different views of the world, the Bible talks about God hurling forth icy blasts and sending forth rain from his storehouses and, you know, unleashing his winds on the earth. So it, it describes weather in these ways that like God is involved and the modern mind wants to read that and be like, well, that's just poetic. Again, the word just yeah, uh, as though you can throw in the word just and that takes everything away. That's just poetry. We know that really what's happening is the water cycle. Water yeah. evaporates and then it, you know, gathers as moisture in the air and it, it condenses and falls to the earth. And that's that's really what's happening is just rain from it's it's the water cycle as though describing the water cycle somehow takes all of the the mystery and the wonder Right. And the divine out of it yes. as though like just because you can describe the water cycle means that's all that's happening. Nothing more than that is happening. God is not actually doing anything. And I think mm. it's a tragedy of it's it's a result or an indication of the fact we are products of this modern way of thinking mm. that even as Christians, we tend to think that way when we look at seeds falling to the ground and turning into trees or water falling. We, we think, oh, we went to you know, fourth grade, fifth grade science, we know that's, this is all that's happening just rather than an enchanted view of the world that no God is ruling over this and and it is a miracle. And and we lose that awe and wonder at this enchanted world we live in. I think Lewis, I think in that hideous strength, particularly he, at the end, he he takes the NICE, this technocratic who, who is doing the just, 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 we can rule a society just through pure intellect and science science, scientism. Um, and, and he takes that all the way to its conclusion. And at the end, like you said, yes, it may take the divine out of everything, but it doesn't actually take the divine out. It actually just makes a vacuum by which demons rush in. Yeah. And so mm. at the end of the story, it actually comes about that they're the, the most scientific among them, this impulse to, um, to use nature and science to its to its uttermost to rule and have dominion over the earth in a way that actually destroys nature. What ends up coming is there actually shows them to be complete paganism, willing willing to worship a talking head being manipulated by demons and give their life to it. I mean, Phil Estrada at the end gives his life 
for this thing to sacrifice himself. So what I, what I take away from that and what has been so helpful is to see, you know, everybody's always worshiping something. Mm -hmm. It's not a weather, it's not a question of weather, but which thing are we bowing to? Um, and when we remove the enchantment from the world and say, it's just that we don't stop worshiping, Mm -hmm. we're just worshiping devilry and, and, and finding some other, um, paganistic animalistic thing that we will give our worship to and if and given enough time and we'll cut up our bodies for or end our lives for or give our lives up for lewis raises the uh objection that he sees coming of when he's talking about okay so we get rid of order we get rid of value why do you assume that these men will be bad men. And he says, well, I don't assume that they're going to be bad men. They're not going to be men at all mm. in the old sense of the word. Men were men because they were grown up and they mm. were raised in such a way that they were in accordance with nature, yeah. that they were living to the um, fulfillment of human nature. Mm. That has to be that that value claim mm. that there's a right way to live. There's an oughtness about the world mm. can only be there if there's a governing principle. Yeah. Um, and just for the, the readers, potential readers sake, if you get into this book and you get across this word that's spelled T-A-O, mm. um, it's pronounced Tao. And that is the catch-all <laughs> phrase that he uses. And I'll be the first to admit that it's, it's kind of tough to digest what he's getting at because he explains it in like 45 different ways and mm. uses a lot of different <laughs> words. He calls it the way, he calls it the road, he calls it the governing principle, the practical reason. He uses all of these terms. Um, and as I was kind of meditating on this, there was one word that he didn't use. And again, I think is just because of the scope of the book. And I would say it's the logos. Mm-hmm. And if you start to read the abolition of man and you read that hideous strength, then you start to think about divine meaning and purpose in the terms of the logos. Mm-hmm. Well, as Christians, it's just something more that we can get our arms around, yeah. that we can grasp onto. Because what, what Lewis, I think, would readily admit, um, just again, not within the scope of this book, is that this Tao is really... Um, at rock bottom, Jesus Christ. That's right. Um, the Lord and Savior, the one that, the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. And that's what he's getting to. Yeah. So as as you are reading this, as we read this, as we think through this, what is this rock bottom principle? Mm. Like, how do I actually know it? Yeah. Um, well, the philosophers ask the same question. How could we actually know something that's outside of the universe? Well, yeah. the, the way that we know is because it entered into the universe. That's right. And that we have uh, the logos here present with us and animating that's us right. as we live. And he animates the entire world That's all right. the time. Yeah. In the beginning was the word yeah. and the word was with God and the word was God. And he took on flesh and actually dwelt among us. Mm-hmm. And we have seen his glory and we have received from him grace upon yeah. grace. And so it's not so much that we, you know, this, he might be hearing and listening to this and be like, Oh, this is just a bunch of philosophical, whatever, <laughs> but all of it finds its unity. It's yes. And amen not just in some abstract philosophical right. concept, but in a person, yes. in an actual tangible person, the, the, the man, Jesus Christ, who mm-hmm. came and dwelt among us. And not just to just so we might be able to diagnose the society, but right. actually to recognize that I'm a part of that evil society mm-hmm. and I need my sins dealt with. Yeah. And Christ has dealt with them. Yeah, so there, there's hope. I mean, yeah. he, he is the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were made. And he's the one that holds all things together by the power of his word. And Ephesians says it's the will of God to unite all things in him. So I think you're absolutely right. That's the one way Lewis could have improved this Mm. if he would have used (laughs) Logos instead of Tao. But 
to, to, as Christians know that it's all found in Christ, mm-hmm. then there's hope for Correct. the world that it's not ultimately, you know, some of the things Lewis says pessimistically, he, he, like you said, he's not just saying this is a, a hypothesis. This is the necessary outcome of some of these mm-hmm. things. But we know as Christians, God is redeeming the world in Christ. And at one point, Toward the end, Lewis talks about you know what the way forward is going to involve repentance. Mm-hmm. You, you can't just back up a little bit and run at it again down the same path. Yeah. You actually have to turn around and go a totally different way and see right. the world in a, in a new way. And so there's a call for repentance there. And we know that's repentance toward God, faith in Christ. And, and so there is a way forward for humanity. Mm. In the end, you know, is humanity going to be lost? No, it's saved and redeemed in Christ. And it's in Christ, the new Adam, mm. that God is forming a new humanity, and it's possible for us to live out what God's purpose is for us as human beings yeah. through our union yeah. with Christ, where God renews our minds, strengthens and fortifies and develops our chests to reorder our appetites, That's right. and, and um, all for the glory of God. That's right. Cam, last word? It's good stuff. <laughs> more to, uh, Go read the thank books. Thank you, guys. Yeah, this is, <laughs> as always, a lot more could be said and should be said. And this is why, you know, this is just a conversation. One of many that the three of us have had multiple times in different ways and continue to have. Um, but yeah, for sure. Go read these books. Um, train the chest. Train mm. the chest. Train your chest. Train, train your children's chest <laughs> um, to raise them up. This is part of what it means to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is to give them right to, to pass on a way of life that is rightly ordered by the grace of Jesus. So Cam, thank you so much, man. This thank is you. this was a joy. Thank you for thank you for that blog post. Thank you for your time spent in this stuff. And man, so till next time. Thanks for listening to Make and Multiply. If you have questions about anything related to discipleship huddles, missional communities, or gospel fluency, you can reach out to your missional community leader. And if you're not yet plugged into gospel community at Emmaus Road, visit us online at EmmausRoadSF.com.